Hello and welcome to On Integrity. My name is Ella and I'm a third year biological natural science student. And my name is Temi and I'm a third year psychological and behavioural science student and you're listening on CAMFM. And this is our second episode. And we're back. We're back, back at it again. We're better. No, last week's pretty good. Let me say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, this is our series and um, this is a place where we based on my speech last year for the Philip Hammond Science Communication Prize, uh, we talk about the presentation of scientific history and the presentation of science and academia today. And each week we read a paragraph from the speech and kind of delve further into the examples discussed and bring in some new examples for you guys because there is a lot out there. There's a lot. A lot. (laughs) And in the last episode, we spoke about the role of slavery in natural sciences and the influences it has on multiple disciplines including medicine Mm -hmm. and we also spoke about how black people were often not given the recognition they deserved for the roles that they play this was mainly due to slavery as enslaved peoples were not getting recognized and also racism i mean massive thing they black people were just not seen as equals and i think it's important that we discuss that and continue to unpack that Mm -hmm. bring these examples to light because that's all we're here to do Today's episode is about how science has previously been used as both a driver for imperialism and also a product of the empire, in particular the British Empire, and how this kind of colonial mindset perpetuates both in science and in society today, yeah. keeping these inequalities there. And I think through addressing the examples in the past, we're going to be able to recognise why we see some of the things we see today and kind of mm-hmm. hopefully pushing to change these inequalities and make things better. So yeah, I'm going to go straight in with the the paragraph. Sounds good. We are often ignorant to the role that science has played in the expansion of British control throughout history. Ronald Ross was a surgeon in the Imperial Army in India. Ross is quoted to have said that the success of imperialism will depend largely upon the success with the microscope, referring to the fact that technology not only helped to protect the health of British troops and officials with its role in understanding malaria transmission, but was used as support for the idea that the empire was saving its subjects. Although his findings were important and should not be disregarded, this example highlights how science was used to almost morally justify imperialism. It went hand in hand with the idea that Britain was introducing modernity and civilised governance to such places. Science and medicine was used to discipline the routines, diets and movements of individuals to strengthen British influence and these themes are echoed in scientific voluntourism today. Hmm. Yes. It's short but it's sweet, okay? like <laughs> There is so much to unpack from that. So much. Yeah, I think like when we wrote it initially, there was just, I kind of just wanted to use like one example because it gets straight to the point. But yeah, as we'll see today, there's there's some really interesting examples out there and a lot of reflections to today, which I didn't really pick up on in that paragraph. But hopefully we can we can get to that today. It'll be it'll be be an enlightening experience, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I'll go with that. But um, I think the best place to start is, I'm not going to dwell on it for too long, but just to kind of have an understanding of what empire is and mm-hmm. specifically talk about the British Empire for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so an empire is a collection of countries which are ruled by a single monarch or ruling power, and in this case, Britain. And the countries are known as colonies, which were ruled in one way or another by Britain. So whether that be 
by the military or a company like the, for example, in India originally by the East India Company. Okay. All that kind of stuff. And um, I think it's quite important to know that the British Empire was the largest empire in history. And at its peak in 1920, it spanned 35 million kilometers squared. And that's roughly around 26% of the world's total land mass. Um, And then the British Empire turned to the British Commonwealth. Um, And during that time, that's when they decolonised, well, the decolonisation of the British Empire. But it's just a different phase for the same thing, in my opinion. Let me not speak too much about it, but basically... We'll unpack later. Yes. We'll get into it. (laughs) (laughs) My main, the main point about this is that Britain had large access to the world and different territories and peoples meaning that science was able to be used grown developed manipulated for their own personal benefit and with the face of trying to civilize other people um but then this does lead us to kind of sense of superiority also influences the way that science has been used and is still kind of used and presented today yeah, like literally, that's that's what we're going to do. And I think we should start with how science and colonialism was linked back then. And then yeah. also then further go into these reflections later today. But yeah, because um, yeah, like, I never really thought about how, like, I don't, we like learn out the empire like a bit. But then yeah. this whole thing about how science, like literally scientific research was used to both push it and also a result of it happening. Like, exactly. I did not know. And it's actually, it's, it's, it's really interesting. But yeah, we'll start with the, the example in the paragraph, which was Ronald Ross. Rossy boy. Yes, with his <laughs> quote that pretty much, that I think sums up the first half, the first half of what we're saying about how science let imperialism, not let it happen, but it was definitely contribution and why the British Empire was so successful yeah so yeah Ross was a lecturer to the Liverpool School of Tropical Diseases and his quote came from after he did a a mission to Sierra Leone which was on researching malaria and the transmission of that Mm -hmm. so obviously for a a long time there was no knowledge of how the disease came about and as Britain was going to these more tropical places they were like we got to get on this like this is something that's going to be important for us if we want to uh move into these places yeah so they wanted to find out how malaria works basically uh they knew it was caused by the bite of the mosquito the anopheles mosquito uh, but the object of the trip was to work out whether there was a chance of exterminating all the mosquitoes and whether that would work uh like locally not like across it so they went to a free town in sierra leone and they like literally what I was reading that like as soon as they got there they kind of found out what was going on like they found that the germs were actually in the insect itself we know today as plasmodium fusiparum uh the parasite so yeah it was I guess you could say kind of successful in that sense because they yeah. they found out that it was inside the mosquito not like the mosquito itself yeah. but um following that trip he did a speech back in the UK uh, it was called the recent medical expedition to West Africa. He said, obviously the quote we mentioned before, but um, also quoting something he, quoting another thing he said, according to the London Times, was that 
Politics and science were accumulating in two movements of high importance. In politics, the great powers, tired of self-development, were endeavouring to extend their possessions and civilization all over the world. While in science, they had created what was perhaps the most fundamentally important of all knowledge, the experimental science of disease. Mm. So it's the two things there. It's, it's saying that at the time, you've got these great powers trying to extend their, their rule and their control of different yeah. places. And you've also got the science of disease being discovered and researched more. So mm-hmm. being able to find out what was going on in disease, be able to do this kind of research then in turn allowed them to further their control and get to these tropical places where malaria was a big problem. But yeah, again, this kind of leads on to two other things. The idea that at the time yeah. that science was making Britain more technologically advanced with the transmission mm-hmm. of malaria and other examples we're going to talk about. But then science was also used in a way as almost like a justification of what was going on because yeah. through doing this research on these diseases, they in some of the examples that were mentioned, they almost tried to say, well, we're going, we're going to introduce it here anyway. So, you know, it's, they, they suggest that they're almost helping because they're doing this research and they're improving the, the maybe the growth of the crop or it, yeah. the condition, things like that. But then again, what is the motive for that? Because a lot of the time, even if, when they have introduced it to the area and they've got people working on it, there's cases where... Uh, treatment of workers is really bad and things like that and there's a lot of disregard for the people of the area even though they've they've done this thing they've introduced this crop and they've told them how to plant it or grow it i just i just i feel like of course like whenever i go to nigeria for example and i have to get my i think is is it oh it might be tablets right um to help prevent malaria because i'm scared i'm trying to go on holiday and see family not trying to catch malaria and and obviously (laughs) it's it's a great thing that it's been done but again the intention of why it's been done it wasn't to help the peoples there it was just to help you move into africa quicker and safer for your people rather than for the native inhabitants there and like that's just what is the issue here it's okay good came from it but your reason and your intention behind it wasn't to benefit the people there it was to make you seem superior and like oh, this kind of like, almost like, not, not. I'm not saying Ross particularly, but like it almost presents like a godlike superiority because they have the technology and science to kind of fix people, which is, which is great, but also you're only doing it because you want land or you want to occupy the space. Yeah, like the initial motive is not necessarily as uh, like innocent as you initially think, I guess. Exactly. We found a really good paper, guys. Really good. You have to oh read it. Like, like, again, the reading list, it's going to be top. Number one, no more, no more, <laughs> you know, like. Clear language, no faff, like, just how you want a paper to be. Like, please. So good. So, yeah, in this paper by Lucille H. Brockway, called Science and Colonial Expansion, the role of British Royal Botanic Gardens. So it explores, like, the early role of the formal scientific institutions in expanding, in making the empire stronger, and particularly through botanic gardens, which were really important at the time. And I'm just gonna just, I'm just gonna read the abstract. I know, you know, they can explain it better than I can explain it. So <laughs> let me just, let me just go with that. Um, 
The political implications of scientific research are explored through an analysis of the botanic garden as an institution generating information about plants of economic value. Botanic gardens have contributed significantly to the colonial expansion of the West through active participation in the transfer of protected plants and their scientific development as plantation crops for the tropical colonies of the mother country. Kikona, rubber and sisal are prime examples. So yeah, we're going to talk about them prime examples because they are prime, you know. We, we, we like them a lot. <laughs> I, knew, I, knew, I honestly knew there was a reason why. I remember there was a time when I went to Kew Gardens with my friend and we didn't really know you had to pay to get in. And we had to pay and we're like, we're not paying to see some flowers and take some pictures. Oh. <laughs> um, so I know, I know it sounds really no, it bad, doesn't. but maybe this is the reason why it didn't sit right in my spirit. I get it. Like now, I guess when you think of botanic gardens today, where we think of them as like, well, like obviously scientists and maybe like public might think of them in different ways. But from a public point of view, uh-huh. it's just, it's, it's like an attraction almost. It's also it's somewhere to learn, but it's also yeah. about how it looks, the aesthetic, like. Yeah, but like back then, quite different from that. It was like actually places of work. A lot of like political and economic implications factors were dependent on their growth, botanic gardens growth. But it wasn't just botanic gardens. You know, there was there was other science that was helping the empire at the time. If we think about, you know, advances in shipbuilding, navigation or weaponry that allowed them to go to all these different places. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yep, weaponry. Um, that's all science dependent, I guess, because you're talking about materials, you're talking about um, like physics of building different things. Yeah, basically applications of science in general to create practical approaches. Mm. Yeah, like same with like communication. So yeah. technology in like exchanging information, like codifying it, everything like that. Just kept making it allowed the empire to do more each time there was a new development it allowed it to go further and allowed it to pass on more information and obviously science wasn't created solely for that but if you think about yeah. it at the time i feel like there was a less emphasis on just research for the sake of it it was all, it was a lot about research yeah. applications so getting all well, i mean it is today i guess still right like who's yeah. going to get the funding the guy that's going to like <laughs> create a product that anyway <laughs> I mean, not, that could be sold yeah you know, anyway. obviously yeah. not completely true but uh-huh. I think a lot more uh in the past is like yeah so what's the science going to do because what's the point of doing it if, if it's not going to help us yeah so yeah those were the societies that were growing at the time the ones that had these technologies the ones that were doing experiments and that's where the botanic gardens really come into it so there's kind of th- three parts that they were involved in botanic gardens that that one helped to strengthen the empire and two helped to well contributed in putting other countries down and you know hurting their economic growth mm-hmm. uh which is where like the problematic side comes into it so the first thing that they really do was to just obtain the natural products from faraway places that they hadn't accessed before right because we only have a limited number of um species and things that we can experiment on here but the fact that they got to travel to different places meant they were experiencing new crops they experienced new things and therefore they could see new applications for these things mm-hmm. so then after they Basically found them, access to almost the whole world yeah exactly and whether depending on the example they either took it legally or forci- forcibly 
which we'll find out. Mm-hmm. And they take it back to the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew. And here is where all the experiments would take place. They'd um, t- test the plant, they'd, they'd study its growth, they'd do species selection, hybridization, um, like, you know, see the different methods of cultivation that would work yeah. that could make an, a cheaper and a quicker way to make that plant, which was going to be useful for a product. So they, they take the natural product itself and then think, how can we modify this? How can we make it so it's successful that it's going to be able to, one, provide benefits for us in its product form, but also economic benefits in selling it. I feel like when we learn about these things about, oh yeah, Britain developed this amazing thing, it's you don't think about the negative impact it then had on other people. And you don't also think about who like originally like thought of that thing, like who originally exactly. uh, like had that native plant and what were the consequences of Britain making it their thing and making you know, and that goes on to the, ne- the third stage of botanic gardens is that after the modification process, after they figured out the best conditions for growth, they'd take it to one of their other colonies, which it would grow really well in. And then yeah. there, get the l- local people, the labourers to work on it. I mean, it's like, OK, you, you kind of steal an industry from one place in the hopes to provide industry for another place. But the industry you're providing is so subpar like again it's just it's so selfish it's just mm. ugh, yeah. it grinds my bones you can see how because a lot of the time justification was like oh yeah we're providing jobs we're providing like you know we're contributing to the economy but then uh-huh. it's not at the end of the day it's always in mind of benefiting britain and exactly it was they didn't always think about, we'll see, like, the consequences on the people, labourers. Like, there wasn't always protection for the workers. There was... Exactly. It's, it's hard. But we'll, we'll talk about the examples because we're, we're being quite abstract. I, I, can, I can see that's probably quite annoying. <laughs> we'll talk about actual real things. So the first one was yeah. quinine. So quinine was yeah. found to work as a malaria drug by the West uh, in the mid-1600s. But it was actually known to native herbalists before, like, that it had this property for a long time, obviously. It was extracted from something called cinchona bark, and this was only provided in the four Andean republics. This was Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Colombia. So they were the original producers of quinine from cinchona bark. So there was a time when the British government was buying, like, was purchasing it from these places, and this really contributed to the economy of these places. So there was, you know, they were a valuable source of revenue for these Andean republics, and you know, they relied on it because it was a, a large part of, you know, their exports. Yeah. But Britain decided they they needed to t- take that one. They <laughs> When they took over, when the British Crown took over governance of India um, from the British East India Company in 1857, uh, there was, like, a lot more concern about having troops in tropical places um because obviously they were now in india so they were thinking malaria they were thinking what can we do they realized they probably wouldn't have enough if they were going to keep buying it from the andean republics so yeah kew gardens was like i want that they they saw it we can solve that issue very easily Mm -hmm. (laughs) so despite the fact that for example bolivia like where the best cinchona bark grew had a state monopoly on the bark and imposed like penalties on the people taking it or anything uh-huh. two gardens just sent out collectors in 1860 to the forest to go and get the seeds you know they just they just the thing is they justified it right they they kind of they said that 
the way the natives were collecting the bark was wrong. They said it was going to destroy the industry. Like they said the way that they were doing it couldn't allow the industry to grow in a way, right? Because yeah. So the the native way of of getting the quinine was to fell the tree and then to strip the bark. Yeah. But, um Britain was like no, it's not going to grow this way. We need to change it up and that was like kind of reason for going in and taking it. It's again the ar- like it's the arrogance I think that I have an issue with like we know better, you're doing it wrong. So since you're doing such a bad job, we'll just take it off your hands. Like, it it, it doesn't work like that. Like, it, I this is, this is when the lines of imperialism and scientific discovery or scientific growth knowledge kind of blur because you're now kind of consciously using scientific, like, terminology and scientific understanding as an excuse to steal from one country to benefit yourself like the lines are starting to muddy up a little bit and I think there was definitely some deliberate and kind of harmful maliciousness to it Mm -hmm. like and you're like literally what you're saying is has reflections to today so yeah so yeah this claim was unfounded right this is like not true the the barkless trunks yeah they were worried about the trunks being barkless or whatever but they'd just be eaten by insects and then the roots would like put out new shoots and everything and they were ready to harvest like in six years so and like i think later on in 1881 they were and republic was still producing apparently like nine million kilograms of bark in 1881 oh which it shows that the idea that they were exhausting the bark was just like not true so oh. yes yeah, so, but they decided to do it anyway yeah, in 1861, Robert Cross. So after consu- after literally consulting with the British Vice Consul, like he blatantly disregarded the laws and just went there to ship out the seeds. So they brought all the seeds back, all the way back to where do we think it was? Kew Gardens. Of course. Yeah. Of so course. like some of them, oh. yeah, Kew, the place that we like go and visit today. But yeah, anyway, some of them were like transshipped immediately to India. Some of them were held as like an experimental or like a reserve supply in queue. And um, they'd like put out special greenhouses and everything. Like it was a massive thing. Like they were like, let's get this industry moving, booming, whatever. Yeah, because you stole the seeds. Mm. You might as like, you ha- <laughs> they, they now die. have to pull their resources, <laughs> <Yeah>. literally. Because <laughs> I mean, you if, if it doesn't go well, you've severed ties with Bolivia, basically. Mm. Like you, you've basically messed up. So they had to get a move on. Everything has to go into it. Exactly. Yeah. Oh God. And the thing about the botanic gardens, another aspect of why they were so important is that it wasn't just one; they were like an actual network. So we had Q, right? But then there was also ones mm-hmm. in different countries, and these ships were then shipped to the botanic garden in the Nilgiri Hills of South India, and mm-hmm. um, there more experimental work was carried out, more like stuff about harvesting methods and the manufacture and everything. And they actually yeah. brought like different communities of people up to the area to employers, labourers, with their like local knowledge of the area to work on it. So again, yeah. they were pooling information from different places, using their political power to um, benefit them by using information of native people from different areas. And not one, we don't. They obviously were never given the recognition. And two, more importantly, they were never given like <laughs> sufficient like monetary, you know, like positives giving this knowledge they was all it was just exploiting people again and even not just money it's like morally lives were lost so they were often brought to 
people were brought to like the cold um damp climate of the hills which they weren't initially mm. used to and like that led to so many lowland workers just getting sick and everything in the name of making this plant um sellable making this plant better yeah. for britain i think like I, maybe some people could argue that oh but workers rights weren't really a thing at the time no matter where you were so like people working in factories for example in britain it like if you worked if you injured yourself you injured yourself like your business kind of thing but i think there is a sort of like conscious understanding that you know this like if you wouldn't be in this climate and you know your body couldn't adapt to this climate what makes you think that these people can adapt properly like i think uh maybe maybe i'm jumping the gun here but i i, I kind of feel like they felt that the people were kind of disposable and i feel like they just thought okay listen this is the best thing for the seed as long as the seed keeps growing and and we can keep getting our quinine there's always going to be people working for us who, like who really cares if that makes sense and i I just, I think, I think there just needs to be a lot more compassion for the people themselves who lose out because of this. And they, they do try to, to be like, well, there were some benefits because, so since the work that was done in India, the, the kind yeah. of scientific research, they actually found like another compound called totoquinine, which was also from the bark, but much cheaper and like almost equally effective as the original quinine and yeah. this did mean that it was not only distributed to mer- to military personnel and like the uh, British people there, but it was distributed to the workers as well, um, yeah. in some form. And like as they say in the paper, they say that Q historians loved the most about this fact that it got really cheap. And I think yeah, in Bengal it was like on the general market and could be bought at any post office or something for a penny a packet. Yeah. But then this supply actually never began to meet the needs of the Indian people at the time. Although at first it seemed like it was going to be something that could be distributed everywhere, it lapsed because once it was enough for the military personnel, most enough for um, those officials, there wasn't the desire to keep growing it in the same way, like in the same type of industry, because, you know, these people in their minds, they didn't need to supply it to them. So yeah, they, they say in the paper that this great public health tool was allowed to lapse and th- this humanitarian gesture amounted to little more than tokenism. So I think that just says it, like, as it was. It says it all. It's a similar idea to, like, the microscope thing that Ronald Ross said mm, earlier. Yeah. How that the microscope and quinine are basically essential to the empire and, and growth and, and science as well. Like, they both play such a huge role. And I think... George Bidey, the surgeon major of the British Army, said this best and went straight to the heart of the matter and said, To England, with her numerous and extensive colonial possessions, it, Sincona Bark, is simply priceless, and it is not too much to say that if portions of her tropical empire are upheld by the bayonet, the arm that wields the weapon would be nerveless, but for Sincona Bark and its active principles. Yeah. It's just it wouldn't have, they wouldn't be able to uphold those 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 areas of the world if they hadn't taken exactly. this technology from those other people. Like it's just, ugh. And I think without quinine, it would have been really difficult for them to access Africa. Period. Like, for real. 
I feel like malaria kind of I know it's gonna sound kind of but malaria kind of acted like a biological biological shield around Africa and like once they had figured out that quinine could help malaria it's almost like boom scramble for Africa here we go like it was just well maybe just come when does come Africa happen anyway but like they could enter Africa more freely without people getting sick they could occupy spaces take spaces like it was Hmm. Yeah, you're like Question. literally like the worst thing is it's not even just it allowed them to to go further but them going further drew others back exactly. they caused the andes production to to fall because they'd made this cheaper compound because you know in the andes and stuff there was a like a low population density although they're producing it it wasn't even comparable to when they had this they could literally ship in workers two different parts of India yeah. and have high population density there that they created through getting workers in and then, you know, working with low pay and things like that. It was obvious that in a way that they were going to be able to find a cheaper way to do this, but that exactly. just completely disregarded the old market, which I guess is the way that, like, this kind of thing works, but it also just mm-hmm. doesn't sit right that that took place through stealing. Like, it wasn't even a, a legal... Um, exchange you know what I mean exactly there must be like biological consequences right like I don't know my ecology uh-huh. brain is like switching on <laughs> like <laughs> like the politics and then I'm just like but like taking plant isn't that gonna be like an invasive species or something I don't know Literally. I haven't even read about that maybe I should <laughs> that was that's a lot sorry I sp- that synchrona was quite a lot of information mm. wow. it's interesting though I feel like we don't yeah like today, it's like, ah, oh, so exciting, so positive, so good. But then a lot of the times it was also, there was a negative, there's a darker side to it. Darker side to this this expansion of knowledge and technology. And we do see reflections to today. And I think that's what we want to talk about next, right? About how science, when we mean negatively, it has. I'm going to talk about how it has negative effects both on the people that it was intended for and the people that it wasn't necessarily intended for. Um, and that example is going to be birth control and for those of you yes. who've used birth control or known anybody who's used birth control eesh that hmm <laughs> birth control me. is a lot and it's a lot and i feel like it's one of those drugs that you kind of have to do trial and error with your body and you shouldn't have to so i think i'm just going to take you on a little journey of the history and how you know that has affected women mainly primarily I'm going to talk about in the US and then in other countries after that um and I just want birth control to be seen as like in a similar way of the way we spoke about with Totoquinine and the Indians um people were seen on other people who were ethnic minorities quote unquote I don't like that term either but you know you understand what I'm saying and are seen as kind of an afterthought and how that kind of intersects with a western mindset and racism at the time so let's get started with a little brief history of birth control so contraceptive methods have been around a little bit longer than it came to the US so there was like a Dutch birth control method which was okay but was kind of inconvenient and a woman called margaret sagner Uh who was a sex educator 
birth control advocate, really strong woman at the time, mm. which was around, she was mostly active around like 1910s onwards. And she wanted a birth control method that would provide women with ease and more comfortability. But this was, I want to point out, was for people like her. So white middle class women. The study that was conducted was poor to say the least. And it was originally conducted on middle class women, but the methods were very, very invasive, caused severe side effects. And those women basically refused to take part. So they moved the study to Puerto Rico, where the main contraceptive method at the time was sterilization and didn't really change the way they were conducting the study. And they, those women also saw that there were serious side effects and thought the methods were invasive, leading those women to conclude that the majority of them believed that they would choose sterilization over the birth control pill. But this did not stop the people behind it to go and present it to the FDA and kind of manipulate the data to allow it to be marketable. And in 1956, it was presented and sold as a menstrual control drug rather than a contraceptive pill. But in 1960, it was officially allowed to be sold as a contraceptive pill. Now, because the contraceptive pill boomed in the pharmaceutical industry like there was money signs everywhere and everybody wanted to get involved this led to the development of so many different contraceptive pills and the one in particular that i would like to talk about is a dalcon shield which is an iud which is another form of birth control now i got this i watched an episode of sex explained on netflix and it was on birth control and i found this really interesting so as I said, birth control was seen as like a trial and error drug and, you know, you have to kind of play with your body a little bit. And they, in this episode, they particularly spoke about a woman called Loretta Ross. She is a black woman. And the Dalcon Shield came out in 1970 and she was one of the first women to kind of take it. And for the first three years, it was good. And three years is a long time for birth control pill to, birth control method to be working really well for you. But after those three years, she started receiving complications. And when she went to the doctor, because she was black and women presenting, he just concluded it must be an STI. It wasn't an STI. All of the tests said it wasn't an STI, but the doctor kept thinking, hmm, black woman equals stereotypes of being sexually promiscuous equals must be an STI. And he kept looking for more and more exotic STIs because that's the only explanation and after six months of being treated for SCIs that she didn't have she fell into a coma and when she woke up from that coma she had a full hysterectomy what basically a whole womb and everything that's connected to that was just gone no concern there wasn't there was none at all and the first thing that the doctor should have done was take out the Dalcon shield before anything else but nope at that point there had been so many bacterial infections that they had to remove it Mm. and 
nasty. I think the first the first issue that we're going to talk about with that is just how science, because there wasn't much, the basis of the contraceptive pill and contraception was already fundamentally flawed. And then the way the medical professions viewed black people and particularly black women in regards to pain, when those two combine, it just leads to situations like this. And I think mm. it's unfair for a woman or somebody in like anybody in general to have to go through something where their consent is not given and it kind of fundamentally changes their whole life and and Mm. what they see from themselves it's like you're going oh because it's for science like it's okay to do this and justifying like um non-consensual actions like that through saying well it's for scientific research it needs to be done it can get into dangerous situations because obviously obviously we should trust science and that's good but you can people can use that the trust that we do have in it for the worst in some cases I don't know I need to read into like the pharmaceutical industry and more you know that kind of like when they're testing yeah. on people in different countries I think that would be really cool to read about but I'm not going to speak about it because I don't know very much but <laughs> it's kind of similar in that point. way right like oh it's for science so therefore we can do these tests yeah. we can disrupt these lives um exactly in the name of science and yeah especially around the colonial era that was able to be done exactly exactly and speaking on pharmaceutical company so the pharmaceutical company that acquired the dalcon shield was ah robbins right Ooh. okay okay i'm scared (laughs) be scared i'm scared um the dalcon shield consequently was discontinued in 1974 four years after it came out Mm -hmm. after at least 18 people had died and 3.3 million American women had been given the Dalcon shield. Crazy. But this gets crazier. Bear with me. Okay. So A.H. Robbins, I'm massive wearing. pharmaceutical company. <laughs> they were found to have conspired in the early 1970s to dump hundreds of thousands of dangerous and unsterilized contraceptive devices into the quote-unquote developing world i also don't like that term but no i digress um and those unsterilized contraceptive devices were dalcon shields and these dalcon shields obviously had been un like marketable in the u.s but felt like they could just dump it into the developing world and one of those countries in particular was apartheid south africa and the woman we spoke about before loretta ross who had her a full hysterectomy after using the dalcon shield went to south africa to tell her story and you know educate the women that this is dangerous Mm. but many of the women she would speak to would say i'm still gonna take it because there's just there was no other contraceptive methods available for them or limited that would be able to do a good enough job and oh so like by dumping you mean like setting off there yeah like just literally take yeah yeah like it's it's not it's not it's not fair and and those women have just as much as a right as the women that you said it was unmarketable for you know Mm. it just it it just doesn't Mm. sit right with me no 
Yeah. Pharmaceutical companies are just... That's an episode in itself. <laughs> a whole episode in itself. But yeah, it is true, like, yeah, the the Western, like, science being, like, a Western thing and then that they can just sell it off or something to another place, like... Exactly. It's so true. And even when we look specifically to, like, academia today, we do see, um, like, Western scientists, like dominating over scientists in other countries there was a yeah. really a really nice well not nice but really good for our podcast um <laughs> study done in 2009 um which looked at the the aspects of neo-colonial science in central african research papers uh yeah. so it, it looked at 13 countries and they found that actually 80 percent of central africa's research papers were produced with collaborators based outside the region. What? So if you're not like completely aware, like when research papers take place, there's like a lead author and then there's like a number of collaborators on it as well. So what they're basically yeah. saying is that the research that's done in these Central African countries, uh, literally almost all of the time, well, 80% of the time, we're seeing papers that have been produced as a result with working with someone in the west someone outside of those countries and initially i feel like people might think you know what's what's completely the issue with that and that's kind of the point exactly. the paper almost makes a little bit um so yeah just for more more details on that with the exception of rwanda each of the african countries principally collaborated with its former colonizer as well so i think that Not line in itself hurts. just yeah, it just shows the that the colonial legacy still lasts today. Sixty-five yeah. percent of Chad's research papers were produced in collaboration with with France, its its former colonial power. Um, well, the thing is, it's like it's kind of a weird one, like because yeah. the paper does make the point that without the countries that don't collaborate with their former colonizer produce very very little research work, and there is li- little research coming out of the area because of the result of the money that's coming from these um, more dominant scientific countries, you know, like there is a point there that he tries to make that it's funding it and it's allowing more research to take place and kind of providing a platform for these people. I get that, but I feel like, not that it's, I don't want to say it's like a trap, but the more you have like you're relying on your formal former colonizers like funding how are you able to break out of that to the point where you can now fund yourself if exactly. they are also basically lead collaborators so it's like not even a featuring it's for example chad and france not chad featuring france mm-hmm. you know it, i feel like it's not going to allow for independent growth. And I do understand that you need funding from somewhere. Science, regardless, it's all about the funding you have. But it just keeps the colonial relationship going, even if the formal relationship is gone. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think if you do look at like the money side of things, you could be like, oh yeah, like what's, what's the problem here? But then if you actually look at the types of research being done, the main yeah. focus of research when they collaborated with the West was infectious and tropical disease work. And oh. that for me says that like, because these scientists in the West, they have the funding, they're the ones that's kind of molding the research taking place. 
yeah they're pushing the research being done to be focused on infectious and tropical disease, which obviously is important because these the people in these countries do need um, like that that kind of knowledge as well when you do look at the table for example and you see how again infectious diseases are like the number one and like so so yeah. like and a number one by far like I'm exactly now, exactly like the, the uk when they collaborate with um central african countries 40% of the papers are done on infection tropical disease work and then 9% are on ecology. Yes. It's like a massive drop down and that for me just screams a bit weird. <laughs> I don't know. Literally. I just, for me, it's just like, when when is there going to be a push for the other sciences to have more collaboration? Mm, it's, it's like vested interest, isn't it? Like, why isn't there? Exactly. It's vested interest. Um, and also another thing that when you look a bit deeper past the money side of things that I found interesting was that the most frequent role in collaborative research uh, with foreign researchers for the scientists in the African countries was doing the field work, which it links back to the idea of like no- local mm. knowledge and things like that. And it also links to the idea that, you know, yeah, we're assigning roles for people. And even though they're collaborating, like I'm doing inverted commas in, in my, <laughs> you can't see me, but um, they're collaborating. <laughs> One person is doing the writing or the coding or whatever. And the other person's just like out in the field. And obviously you don't know if that's like by choice or not, but it definitely, when we see these trends, it's important, it's important to question them. And that's just what this podcast is about, seeing these trends yeah. that are going on and thinking, what could be the reason why we're seeing it like that? And that's up for anyone to make their own uh, opinion on really but yeah it's uh, that paper was interesting i'll link i'll definitely link it because it is seeing those actually numbers yeah, it's a I'm good like, read damn like it's actually significant yeah and also like oh my gosh i was gonna say that the other day i've literally started seeing these tweets about um oh no <laughs> yeah literally twitter she's bring twitter into things <laughs> ah get, get scary but yeah, so like you know, academic Twitter, right? <laughs> like everyone posts about stuff. Yeah. But um, I've seen these things about um. So when you submit a paper, you you get like reviewers to comment on it and talk back. Yeah. And there was some really like interesting replies, which kind of implied that um. The the paper could only be successful if it was collaborated with someone from the West or if it was written by someone in the West. Like, I'm not, I'm going to root it out to you guys because I'm not even joking. Like, it's it's explicit. It's not even, like, subtle. <laughs> I feel sick. Yeah. Oh, I feel sick. Ew. Okay, so this is one, one of the... We'll also probably, like, retweet these tweets or something to show you, but um, this is one reply. I think that to write papers that are competitive, you should probably partner with more experienced authors in the Western world... I understand that might be difficult or impossible. Sorry. Who are you? I don't know what context that was in. Like... I don't know what else they said either side, but I'm just reading. So the, t- the tweet actually goes, so submitted a paper to at Springer Nature Journal and was shocked with one of the reviewer's comments. Apparently scientists outside the West are incapable of conducting re- competitive research on their own. We need Western scientists to hold our hand. Like, that's what I interpreted from it as well. Like, I can't believe... Same. Just... People are actually mad. So taking it slightly out of the scientific academia mm-hmm. realm, um, I think a good place to talk about, like, is voluntourism and the white saviour complex. Nice. 
no. it sounds it sounds like a lot, but we got this. It's it's a really interesting place to discuss because <laughs> I think so. Voluntourism is basically people more often than not white people going to again I don't like the term developing countries to help you know build wells or help basically help the community for their summer holidays or their gap year you know that Mm. that kind of that kind of realm and and it's kind of coined the term voluntourism because you're volunteering but then it's also muddied in with observing another group of people and experiencing that kind of lifestyle as if you were a tourist in another country right and we often see people on their gap year or in their summer holidays going to African and Asian countries in an attempt to give back or help those who are less fortunate and although the sentiment is sweet there are so many things that are flawed with this one and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about this from like a personal Wait, just 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 I often hear and I know other people will agree with me I often hear when people come back from these trips that were so enlightening and and it humbled them they often talk about how it affected them Mm. rather than how it affected the people over there and 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 what progress they made it was just oh I felt it, it really humbled me and made me look in within myself and make me feel grateful for what I have which is all well and good and the sentiment again is good I'm not trying to say that you know that's but that it it almost makes the whole trip sound a little bit self-serving rather than actually trying to give Mm. back if that makes sense and I think it's important to talk about in the context of looking at colonial reflections because you know when we're talking about the microscope and the idea that Mm -hmm. science almost justified imperialism it kind of not it's yeah. similar in a way because it's saying that I can go somewhere and because I'm doing good it kind of justifies uh the bad things that result from voluntourism like exactly it's 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 the the thing the one of the points the reason why I don't agree with voluntourism is because it takes away from teaching local communities so you're taking unskilled school leavers and telling them you go build wells with these people or you go now be working in orphanages with children Mm. instead of investing the money from the charity into the local community so they can be self-sustaining and build the wells for themselves and and tap into that industry for themselves you know it's oh I just I I just personally don't feel like you will stay long enough to make such a sustainable impact do you yeah, get what i mean it's strange like i'm particularly talking about the ones that are like six weeks four weeks long yeah and like things like orphanages it encourages like the institutionalization of children and like it makes a business out of it because people are exactly. paying to go there like it's not like free or anything like exactly speaking of orphanages mm-hmm. right so um I, there was this like pdf that i found on um google called by the better care network and basically talking about orphanages and volunteering and why it's just a no-go and one of the main things was it normalizes access to vulnerable children Mm. and although the intention is to oh i want to care for these kids 
and and look after them and give them affection that will do more damage than good because these kids have like not all of them have been abandoned some are in temporary Mm -hmm. care despite popular belief some people children are like yes in like African countries are put there temporarily and then taken back home and these so when you disrupt a child especially in their developmental years and you disrupt their attachment that can have really detrimental effects especially when they're put in an institution and now you're giving anybody and everybody access to vulnerable children it can almost confuse the child because they'll get very very quickly attached to these people and then in four weeks four weeks they're gone Mm. I just personally feel like volunteerism has a detrimental effect on orphanages and on the local communities despite what it sells itself as Mm -hmm. and that's and why we're talking about it is because we saw that during the colonial era when places people going to countries and being like oh i can provide work by growing this crop here um i can like help provide economic growth and through science because we're making we're putting a new crop here that we've modified to this area and we're going to provide research opportunities and then at the end of the day a lot of the time we're seeing this they're doing it for the benefit of themselves rather than the benefit of the people there and it causes a greater detriment in the end anyway i think that wraps up everything for today yeah that was a good episode i really enjoyed talking about that i like that episode yeah so did i like, i think just talking it all out like makes the link so much clearer in your head because obviously we do we obviously do some research before we get on air but you just never really and so you start thinking abstractly and like kind of responding to what the other person says I don't know it just makes so much more sense I yeah. feel enlightened after exactly. that conversation so do I <laughs> yeah so what did we even talk about let me try and summarize that um <laughs> colonialism and science we started off with the idea that um colonialism and science are again intrinsically I don't know not intrinsically linked but um science has pushed colonialism colonialism has pushed science and in a way this is uh negatively yeah. affected groups of people and a lot of the time well less so today as we're recognizing the kind of negatives of the empire but we talk about like how great it was and how successful it was but you don't really recognize why this happened well it happened because they could transfer energy they could transfer knowledge of a plant from one area back to britain modify it and exactly. put it in an area where they had control over it and where they could get laborers and then they took the profits from that yeah. right back to them while leaving people both in the native area and the area where the label was going on um, economically <laughs> lives like decrease you know what I mean like and then we spoke about like the negative impacts this has on science going forward and I spoke about birth control and how it kind of sways away from contemporary understanding of colonial mindset and more into mm. um western superiority and that mindset Mm, which perpetuates in academia it perpetuates in just society in general with volunteerism and it's present in conservation research when you think about which knowledge is better which knowledge is which which knowledge has precedent over another um i just recognize these trends that are going on will help Mm -hmm. us have more integrity in science and it and it help it a more transparent field not one that's underlined by all these inequalities and uh preconceptions 
stereotypes. Yes. But that was really good. And we're finally going, next episode will be so much fun because it's probably like, probably the classic thing you thought you were going to talk about when, when you saw our advertising, which is the famous underrepresented, ignored, oppressed scientists hidden yeah which you probably like see on (laughs) we're not just going to say the people that you classically see on like i don't know black history month when they just which are obviously great and it's great but we kind of reiterate the same stories again and again and as much as that's great and important for that that famous underrepresented person it's you've also got to recognize the other people that have done amazing work and almost pushing one of them exactly. is contributing further to the underrepresentedness of it you know what i mean like if you're just saying this is yes. the only black scientist that we will talk about then you're kind of not you're making it worse because you're just saying well there's only one whereas there's so many exactly. and there's so much cool stuff that's gone so on, many and i can't wait to like delve into that further same so thank you for listening, everyone, to On Integrity with Ella and Temi on Cam FM. And I hope we'll see you again next week for this exciting episode on Cam yes. FM. Bye, everyone. Have a lovely week. See you later.